Tick, tock, tick, tock. This is your James Bond moment. And I was just thinking, I am so dead. True Spies, with me, Hayley Atwell, wherever you get your podcasts. This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. Before we were able to evacuate, we had to destroy everything. And it was exactly like what you've seen in the movies. Any scrap of paper that we had, we had to shred. We had people taking turns, taking shifts, running through that shredder. And that thing was running all night. And so, you know, along with all the other junk in the air from like the bombs and all that kind of stuff, we also had like this pulp from the shredder, all the paper flying into the air. And it's just like created this haze. From Foreign Policy and Spyscape, welcome to I Spy, real life spy stories told by the people who were there. Each week we feature one former intelligence operative from somewhere around the world describing one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On today's show, CIA officer Sarah Carlson spent a year at the U.S. mission in Libya after the attack that killed four Americans in Benghazi. During her time there, battles between rival Libyan militias edged closer and closer to the U.S. compound. Eventually, Carlson and the others fled the country in a harrowing overland journey. The year was 2014. Carlson was a counterterrorism analyst having started her career at the Defense Intelligence Agency before moving to the CIA. She begins her story a year earlier when her mission in Libya began. I arrived in Tripoli in July of 2013. And really on the flight, I stood out quite a lot. I have blonde hair and blue eyes and I'm pretty tall. So I was definitely noticed and received a lot of attention. I think I was one of the few women on the flight as well. Actually, when I first arrived, they lost all of my luggage, and I didn't really have that much with me, just a small backpack with, like, one change of clothes. We considered it a war zone, high-risk post. So it's a little bit nerve-wracking because I didn't have any weapons issued to me yet or anything like that. I applied for the position because I had followed external operations, so terrorist groups plotting attacks against the homeland or the West. And some of the documents from the bin Laden raid that we found indicated that they wanted to use Libya as a platform to launch attacks against Europe. And since that had been my focus within counterterrorism, that is the reason that I applied for that job. When I first arrived at the compound, my boss there, so when I first met him, I asked him, you know, what he expected of me, and he said to know everything. So, you know, that was a little daunting, of course, coming in new. But I knew that I would pick it up really quickly. I mean, that was all I did all day, every day, was read and learn and think about Libya. I was there to provide intelligence briefings to 
the country team. So it was, you know, the ambassador and some of the senior officials there at the embassy. I would brief them on a weekly basis, and I also put the book together. So it was this binder full of all intelligence reporting or assessments or anything sort of significant that mentioned Libya. And then anything from within the intelligence community or foreign policy community that was an assessment or something of interest, I would include. And I relied a lot on social media. So Twitter primarily, I would go through and I would read it in Arabic and in English. I would see a tweet from a local about um, a shooting on a particular block or in a particular neighborhood. And I would put that together for her. I'd like literally read everything and go through and highlight different parts that I thought she might need to draw her attention to. And so it was refreshed every week. And, you know, as soon as we were done, shred it all and then start over again. There was so much, especially at that time, because of the Benghazi attacks. And that was, you know, pretty soon after they happened, so we were trying to get more information on them. So there was quite a lot about what happened. The Benghazi attacks were the attacks by Ansar al-Sharia against our U.S. facilities in Benghazi in September 2012. The front gate was overrun by an armed group. They went in and they set multiple buildings on fire and were attacking our officers. Then the CIA security officers from the nearby annex went to provide assistance. And ultimately, later that night, after they returned to the annex, the annex was also attacked by a mortar fire. The ambassador, Ambassador Chris Stevens, was killed along with three other officers, two of whom were CIA security officers. Benghazi definitely loomed over everything we did. The group that conducted that attack in Benghazi, Ansar al-Sharia, they were designated a terrorist organization. And we knew they were moving towards Tripoli and interested in attacking us there. So I wanted to make sure that we followed that group and what they were doing and who they were working with, and then look at ways that they might attack us in our facilities. And then I also looked at who they might be working with and who those people were conducting attacks against. So it was sort of a couple of different factors. So the government of Libya at that time was led by a prime minister, Ali Zaydan, and then there were the militias with two primary sides. One side was the Zintan. So the Zintan owned the land that we sat on and they provided our outer security you know, guarded the gate, that kind of thing. They also controlled the airport. The other group was the Misraten militia. So they came from the coastal city of Misrata. And so it was very concerning for us that these two sides seemed to be fighting. And we were sitting, you know, in the middle of the territory of one of them. And any attacks that happened, you know, we would be caught in the crossfire. There wasn't a lot to do for downtime on the compound. It was uh, fairly small, but I like to run. So I would run laps around the compound every day. 
I would go at lunchtime, which probably seems a little crazy running outside, you know, in the desert heat in the middle of July. There wasn't really a path for us, so I was jumping over uh, barriers and running through sand and then on pavers and watching out for snakes all the time. I also brought my bow and arrows. So my stepdad had taught me years ago how to do archery and I was able to get uh, hay bales and set up this sort of improvised archery range in the back of the compound. So I would go out there about once a week and practice. Usually when I was out there, people would come out to watch. The violence in Tripoli was fairly intermittent until I would say around December of 2013. And there was a major event at the end of the month that sort of changed everything for us, changed our environment and our operating posture. We had a U.S. military team that had come in to do some work on, you know, evacuation routes and reconnaissance. So they had taken the coastal road out towards Tunisia, and they were along the coast near the city of Sabratha when they encountered a checkpoint. One car made it through, and then the second was stopped, and it was a more extremist militia. And they pulled them from the vehicle. They held them on the side of the road at gunpoint. The vehicle was set on fire, and then they were ultimately taken back to Tripoli and held overnight. They weren't released until the next morning. So that sort of hostage situation definitely shifted the tone of what we were doing and our efforts there in the country. After that, the kidnapping threats spiked, and a lot of them were very much focused on getting an American. We we're pretty fortunate they did not capture an American, but they captured other foreign diplomats. There was a South Korean trade official that was kidnapped. There was an attack against the Egyptian facility. There was kidnappings of a few Tunisian diplomats. And then the most notable was the kidnapping of the Jordanian ambassador to Libya. The uptick in violence turned the focus of what I was looking at. So I went from you know, looking at you know, the more strategic long-term stuff to like the threats really quickly, what they meant for us, how we could protect against them while we were out on moves. So I would study how the kidnappings occurred, the tactics that the groups employed when they did those kidnappings. We actually found out that one of the um, militia groups formed a hostage-taking group. It was called the Libya Revolutionary Operations Room. The situation really came to a head in mid-July. So on July 12th, we got a call that night from somebody in the Misratan militia saying that Operation Dawn was going to start the next day. They said their target was going to be Tripoli International Airport. They resented that it was controlled by the Zintan and it was very much a power move. So whoever controlled the airport controlled access to the country and who was going in and out. So it was a prime target. 
The fighting started at 5.30 with a series of rocket barrages. So I could hear them coming in and hitting the airport. We were pretty close. It was like, you know, those deep kind of booms that you can feel. And it just kept coming. We got a code red, so we had to go down to the bunkers. There's this, you know, little space under the stairwell that was lined with sandbags, and we all crowded in there. So it was really cramped, and, you know, you could feel it was shaking the building, shaking the windows. You could hear it when it impacted, exploding. So we knew it wasn't stopping, and that, you know, CIA headquarters was going to have a lot of questions and a lot of concern about what was happening, and that we needed to get into the office. So we had to go out into it, which was sort of one of the most terrifying moments of my life. You know, you just had to do it. There really wasn't a choice. So I went with a team of security officers. They um, escorted me to the office. So, you know, stepping out into that so I could see in the distance the planes were getting hit at the airport. And there's like this black billowing smoke that was coming up and could see and hear all the rockets that were still incoming. So they were hitting sort of all around the airport, all around us. You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy and Spyscape. We'll be right back. True Spies is the ultimate debrief on the stories only spies can tell. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Listen now at spyscape.com forward slash I spy. Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margo Martindale. We return to Sarah Carlson and her story of the U.S. evacuation from Libya. So that lasted about two weeks, that heavy fighting, and it was really intense. There were uh, rocket attacks, hundreds of them, every day. So it was a lot of incoming, and then the Zentan, of course, started fighting back. So they were sending outgoing rockets. So, you know, learned to differentiate pretty quickly the sound the difference between the outgoing and the incoming. So the outgoing, it was like this piercing, scraping metal sound where you could hear the metal on metal as they were launched. And then the incoming, when it was close enough, you could hear the whine on the incoming rocket. So those were the ones you knew you really had to worry about. In addition to the rocket fire, there was all the other heavy weapons. There was 14.5 and mortars and small arms fire. There ended up being a suicide attack against one of the buildings that was sort of close by. The Zentan told us that they found a couple of unexploded car bombs around our location. They were unused, but it was still, you know, disconcerting to find out that they had found VBIEDs within our territory. The scariest part is that there was no reinforcements. Like, we were entirely on our own. And I think that's very different from, like, Iraq or Afghanistan, where, you know, a huge number of U.S. military there, at least when I was in Iraq, you know, I was there on a base with 
thousands of military members, but in Libya, we were totally on our own. The closest help was, you know, across the Mediterranean or on a ship in the Mediterranean. So it would take at least a couple hours to get help to us. But a rocket attack or an assault on the front gate, the whole thing would have been over within a few minutes. You know, one day I was in the office and I had gone up to get some food and I was standing near the window looking out and the whole window was like vibrating from the impacts and it was shaking everything in the room. And looking out the window, you couldn't really see any of the other buildings because there was so much smoke and like the blackness in the air from all the spent artillery, but then also like the fuel from the planes that they were hitting. It was very eerie. Ultimately, the decision was made to evacuate all U.S. personnel from Libya. More than 150 people, and there were a lot of options that we looked at. But we had to rule out a lot of our primary choices because they were all based on air travel. So we couldn't use Tripoli International Airport anymore. We weren't sure if any of the runways were still a viable option. So if we were to fly in a plane, could they even land on the runway? We had no idea if they were still usable or not. There was so much anti-aircraft artillery that flying anything into Tripoli airspace was a high, high risk. So we ruled out any uh, air transport. We had to rule out the ship transport because we were not able to go from our location to the coast because we would have to go through downtown Tripoli and that's where most of the fighting was happening. So then we had overland options to look at and we ruled out using the coastal road because that was the one where We'd had the military members um, detained the British embassy. They ended up taking the coastal road and they were actually attacked during their evacuation. So ultimately, we decided on the longer overland evacuation all the way to Tunis. Before we were able to evacuate, we had to destroy everything and it was exactly like what you've seen in the movies. Any scrap of paper that we had, we had to shred. We had people taking turns, taking shifts, running through that shredder, and that thing was running all night. And so, you know, along with all the other junk in the air from like the bombs and all that kind of stuff, we also had like this pulp from the shredder, all the paper flying into the air, and it just like created this haze. We also had to destroy our hard drives, so we had to pull all the hard drives out of the laptops and drive nails through them, and then we hammered them, and then we started these huge destruction fires. So on our compound, we used this space that we had been planning to use for a bunker, but it hadn't been constructed yet, so it was basically just a big hole in the ground at that point. And, you know, it's crazy because it was all this non-flammatory stuff and we had to use um, like incendiary grenades to get it started. Everything went on the fire. Computers, laptops, hard drives, all the shredded 
documents, like the pulp that was left over went on the fire. Everything went on that fire. I had to leave behind everything that I could not carry with me. So I was able to take my go bag and then one small backpack. Go bag is small bag that you carry with you that has what you need to survive. So in mine, I had, you know, my passports, a couple of different kinds of currency, you know, my extra ammunition and my Glock. At the end, I started carrying my Glock on me. At first, we weren't allowed to carry our weapons. They had to be concealed. But, you know, once that fighting started, I just, I figured, you know, I wasn't going to go down without a fight and I was going to have it on me. So it was what what you would need to survive if you were caught in an ambush or kidnapped or something like that. My saddest thing was having to uh, burn my bow and arrows. That was pretty depressing. When I put that on the fire, oh my gosh, I hated Libya so much, so much in that moment. So the plan for the actual evacuation was that we would take the southern road. There were about five checkpoints that we had to go through. The first one was the most dangerous one because it was controlled by a militia that was hostile towards us, um, didn't particularly like Americans or want us there. The convoy was divided up into chocks, which is like smaller groups of vehicles so that we weren't going in one big convoy that we divided up into sections and the sections we called chocks. We were very much preparing for an ambush. We thought there would likely be one along the route. I firmly believed that we were going to be attacked or would encounter an ambush. So in the evacuation itself, I had a pretty unique role. I was designated tactical commander of my vehicle. So what that meant was that I was responsible to protect the people in the vehicle. So if we were ambushed and the security officer had to try to drive out or was incapacitated, then it was my responsibility to move the other people in my vehicle to safety. So most of the people filling that position were the security officers. So the security officers all had significant special operations backgrounds, you know, very specialized training for that type of role. So I think I was the one exception. I was also the only woman to fill that role. And, you know, it was quite an honor. It was also quite terrifying. So for that purpose, I was issued another Glock 19 with another few magazines. I also had a rifle. I was issued an M4 with a stack of magazines. So. The night before we left, I staged the uh, magazines in the car, so they filled up like all underneath my seat and in front of it where my feet would go. And then we had to um, take like a scarf or something like that to conceal the rifles once we got into Tunisia. So, you know, like the only scarf I had was like ridiculously sparkly, beautiful blue one that my mom had sent me. So I ended up using that one to conceal the rifle. So the morning of the evacuation, the fighting had gotten to the embassy facility. I think the 
Ambassador had gotten spooked because they were hit with indirect fire throughout the night and had sustained quite a lot of damage. Pulling out of the front gate that first moment was actually the scariest part of the evacuation itself. I knew the threats and I knew everything that could be on the other side of that gate. So it was that initial rollout that was absolutely terrifying. So as we were driving south from Tripoli, we were passing groups of armed militias staging to go into Tripoli to fight. There was still fighting going on while all this was happening, so there were still rockets exploding and small arms fire. We passed so many technicals that were headed towards Tripoli. So the technicals were what Libyans used, um, like improvised military vehicles. So they would take pickup trucks or other vehicles and um, permanently attach like a rocket battery onto the back of it. So we were just watching very carefully what we were passing. We were calling out anything that looked like it could be a threat, any vehicles that came close to us. So we kept up a really high level of awareness until we got to that first checkpoint. So when we approached that checkpoint, I covered my hair. I didn't have to, but I threw a scarf over my head. I figured it was going to be noticeable enough that it was a woman in the front seat, um, which wasn't particularly normal. So I just wanted to make sure that I was um, taking all the precautions I could not to uh, provoke anyone. But once we got through that one, we were able to take a breath a little bit. You know, we were on our own. There were no reinforcements, but AFRICOM did provide like a drone overhead to monitor our progress. There were two Osprey, and they were full of Marines, and then there were two F-15s that flew. I didn't hear them. Um, again, with all the fighting in Tripoli airspace, I think they were maintaining some distance, but they were up there and they were ready to respond in case we needed help. When we crossed into Tunisia, it was such a huge relief. We had been on edge for so long. I had been working insane hours and really hadn't slept. You know, we'd been in the middle of that bombing campaign for two weeks, so that did not lend itself to sleep. So it was just exhausting and, you know, really high stress level for so long that to finally get to somewhere where we could breathe in and out safely, it just sort of hit all at once. So from the time we left Tripoli until the time I got to Tunis was 26 hours. If we had not evacuated, we would have eventually been overrun. So the facilities were actually taken over in August. So it was not that much longer, just a few weeks after we left, that they were taken over by the opposing militia that the Zintan had to fall back. Um, there was actually video of it where they were like having a pool party and it showed them jumping off like the roof of a villa into a pool. 
and that was on our compound. So if we hadn't left, we would have been in a lot of trouble. Sarah Carlson served as a counterterrorism analyst with the U.S. government for more than a decade. She describes her experiences in the book, In the Dark of War, a CIA officer's inside account of the U.S. evacuation from Libya. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron. Rob Sachs, Amy McKinnon, and Dan Haverty helped produce today's show. The interview with Carlson was conducted by Dan Efron. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us, ispy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Foreign Policy subscribers can sign up and get bonus episodes each week in your podcast app. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash ispy. If you're not a subscriber, you can still get access to additional excerpts and interviews by joining iSpy+. For details, go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpy. You will also find a link to our Facebook page where you can get the latest updates and hear directly from the producers of iSpy. I'm Margot Martindale. As I was saying, True Spies is a new podcast in which real spies tell us about their role in the espionage operations that changed history. True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, meet the people who navigate this secret world. It was going to be a massacre. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Look for True Spies wherever you get your podcasts.